0: Good evening, I'm Carla Hayden, CEO of the Enig Pratt Free Library, and welcome to a very special edition of our Writer's Live series, and we're very pleased to have all of you here tonight, and I wanted to give a special welcome to the Princeton uh, Club family that's here today. I think they deserve a hand for all of you Yaley, not uh, Princetons. Uh, We knew that we had a very special edition tonight. Now, our guest's new book tonight uh, that we're going to hear about, Bliss Remembered, is a delightful read and has already been getting a lot of attention and high praise. Some of you may have seen him discuss it on the Today Show and heard him on WYPR. And so we are very honored to have a Baltimore native and someone that we are pleased he's making his first Pratt Library appearance. So thank you, Mr. DeFord. To introduce our special guest tonight is a true friend of the Pratt Library. She serves as co-chair of that young group, the Pratt Contemporaries, and actually was one of the founding members, and now we're very pleased that she serves on the Pratt Library's Board of Directors. Please welcome Ms. Chris Espinche.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so excited to see so many people here, and I'm particularly excited to see so many members of the Princeton Club of Maryland and the Princeton Club of Washington, D.C. It is a special night for the Maryland group in that we are celebrating our 125th anniversary as a club, and it just so happened that... Frank DeFord was coming in town and we had an opportunity to bring the Princeton folks in um, to hear him speak and we're so very excited and we're so excited that so many members from the public are here to um, see this tonight. Thank you for coming. Um, We're so glad to have you here tonight and I'm going to give a few words about Frank DeFord. So, in no particular order, writer, commentator, Princeton alum, and Baltimore native, Frank DeFord is the author of 16 books. His latest novel, which he's here to discuss this evening, is Bliss Remembered, which is a love story set in the 1936 Berlin Olympics and in World War II. On radio, you may have experienced a few driveway moments on Wednesday mornings when DeFord gives his morning commentary. On television, he's the senior correspondent on the HBO show Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel. And in magazines, he's the senior contributing writer at Sports Illustrated. Mr. DeFord has been presented with a National Magazine Award, a Christopher Award, Journalism Awards from the University of Missouri and Northeastern University. The Sporting News has described him as the most influential sports voice among members of the print media, and GQ has called him the world's greatest sports writer. He has won an Emmy, a George Foster Peabody Award, and ESPN has done a television biography about him. We are truly honored that he's with us this evening, and thank you all for your attendance and support of the Pratt Library.
2: Thank you so much, Justin. It's always wonderful to be in a library, and especially uh, back in Baltimore. I have never spoken here before, and so this is a real treat for me after all these years, too. Come back home and uh, tell you about uh, my new novel. Uh, only a little bit of it takes place in Baltimore, but a great deal of it takes place on the eastern shore of, 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 of Maryland. And as you might surmise from the title, Bliss Remembered, it is a love story. And not only that, but I have not only written it as a woman, but I have written it as a woman in love. I hope you can tolerate that. <laughs> uh, uh, that was my challenge. The woman is Sydney Stringfellow, it's uh, the year 2004, she's 86 years old and she's dying of cancer, but she's still very much full of life, even as life fades away, and more than that, it's important for her to tell the story, uh, the great love story of her youth, going back to the 1930s and especially to to the Depression, to the Berlin Olympics, and onwards into the beginning of World War II. And although she's written some of her story out, it's important that she tells some of it, too, to her son, Teddy, uh, because it's especially involving that he know, knows what happened to her, he more than anybody else. Beyond the romance, you see, there are some revelations, uh, some mystery, things that happened a long time ago, and so Teddy comes to visit her mother. Now not living any longer on the eastern shore, but in Eugene, Oregon. And this, this is the way it begins. She has an acetate envelope. Uh, this is your story, I asked, pointing to the envelope. Mother nodded. Uh, at the Olympics, that's part of it. She grinned and rather mischievously, I thought. But Teddy, prepare yourself now. There's some sex. That took me aback a little. There is. I hope you can abide that, Teddy. I promise not to offend your delicate sensitivities. I'll try not to blush, Mom, and I'll try not to spell it out. Okay, it's a deal. Her expression changed then, and in a voice so different that I thought at first she was putting me on, she said softly, some violence too, Teddy. I watched closely before I realized she was serious. Even then, uh, I, I wasn't certain. Violence? Really, Mom? Violence? One day, she said, yes, some violence, one day. And, and, and so begins a Bliss Remembered. Where did Sidney Stringfellow come from uh, in uh, my imagination? I must say, too, I wanted to call the novel simply Sidney Stringfellow, but the salesman said that nobody would realize that Sidney was a woman. Um, which sort of surprised me, given that there's a a woman swimming on the cover, a very attractive woman. But they said no, nobody would understand any longer that Sydney was a woman. So it became bliss remembered. But people do always want me to know, want to know how a novelist chooses the, the topic for his book. And in my case, novel to novel, it can be very different. My last novel, for example, well, the one before this, I specifically wanted to write about the entitlement of athletes. I literally had the title, the entitled in my mind before anything else. I had the main character. I had the title character and, and the basis for the plot. Uh, I had it all spelled out very, very neatly. That's one experience. With Bliss Remembered, it was exactly the opposite. I, I, was, I was a novelist in search of, of a novel this time. After I wrote the entitled, I had written a play about dementia, a little movie about murder in a hospital. The entitled itself centers around an alleged rape. So there you had rape, dementia, and homicide, in my last three efforts. <laughs> you, you, you can imagine I was looking for something a little lighter. Uh, I wanted to write a love story. I, I, I really did. It's as simple as that. And I love. I love working uh, in the past, um, any time in the past. And, and that is a great advantage with love stories. Think about it. Love stories are not about boy meets girl, girl falls in love with boy, and they live happily ever after. That's, that's not a story. Love stories are, are basically about an impediment to love. Somebody or something trying to separate the lovers. I mean, uh, we only have to remember the greatest of all, Romeo and Juliet, to, to, to know that sometimes they do have happy endings. The love stories. I'm not going to tell you whether bliss remembers and uh, remember to ends happily. But the point is that something must happen to stop the lovers from coming together. And in the modern world, think about it. It's harder and harder. All sorts of people fall in love and get married who years ago would not have been allowed to. And so that makes it even better to work in the past because you have those kind of social or cultural impediments that we no longer, thankfully, still have. Uh, and so, so the more hurdles you have, the better, and the more different the people who are, who are falling in love, the better. This was all in the summer of 2008, two years ago. And that just happened to be an Olympic summer. And it occurred to me, you know, I don't know of any novel, of any fiction that's ever been written with the Olympics as a background. It it, it kind of surprised me. And for a love story, you can't ask anything better than the Olympics because the very point of the Olympics is to bring different people together and stick them all in, in one place. And So whereas I'm not always looking to write a sports novel because the beauty of my of the novels are that it allows me to get away from sports and if anything, come back to sports then with, with, with more enthusiasm. But I thought, well, the Olympics would be just a perfect place for a love story. And then the question was, what Olympics? And I immediately thought of 1936, the Nazi Olympics, the, the Hitler Olympics. And I discarded that right away. I said, that's too obvious that's too easy and I started thinking of other possibilities certainly a love story anytime during the Cold War would have been fine uh, as a matter of fact there was a true love story a guy named Harold Connelly an American I think he was a hammer thrower fell in love and married a Czech who we met at the Olympics uh, I thought about maybe going further back in time uh, the Paris Olympics of 1900 how can you not fail to get a love story out of, out of Paris and at the turn of the century. It was wonderful. But despite myself, I kept coming back to 1936. And then I remembered, I don't know why it had taken me so long to put this together, that in fact I had met and been with two of the principals from the 1936 Olympics. The first was Eleanor Holm. For those of you who don't remember her. And she died, uh, Eleanor died about four or five years ago. She was the gold medalist in the backstroke in 1932 in Los Angeles. She was a beautiful, beautiful woman. Hollywood um, was after her. Uh, She married an orchestra leader. Unfortunately, on the boat, on the ship going over to Berlin, uh, she allegedly misbehaved. Those were the days when the Olympics were run by dictators. A guy named Avery Brundage was the chief dictator. And he summarily threw Eleanor out of the games. That sort of thing couldn't happen today, but, but it, it did then. I met Eleanor, of all places, at the White House. Uh, HBO had done a special documentary on women's athletics and I had written it. And we had gotten Hillary Clinton to um, to do sort of a preface a preamble for the show, and so the Clintons were nice enough to invite us and a bunch of athletes uh, to the White House, and Eleanor came. She was a woman in her 80s then, and I'm not kidding you, and I'm not exaggerating, she spent the entire evening, or most of the evening, flirting with President Clinton. (laughs) I was standing there with Rich Sandomir in the New York Times, and at one point, Eleanor said to him, you are one good-looking dude. And he said, Eleanor, you have made my night. Uh, she was delightful. She was just as sprightly. You could imagine this, this, this beautiful athletic woman in the 1930s. She went on, by the way, to divorce the orchestra leader, marry Billy Rose, and became the star of the World's Fair Aquacate in 1939. And so suddenly, suddenly I began to see my main character emerge as someone like Eleanor, a younger Eleanor, with Eleanor as a sort of the mentor. I didn't set out to write it as a woman. I didn't mean to be a woman. But um, <laughs> suddenly I just followed the lines of, of least resistance, and there I was as Sidney as Stringfellow. She began to emerge before my eyes. And then the second historical figure of those games who I met was also a woman. Uh, Leni Riefenstahl. I spent a day at her house with her doing a story on her in 1986, the 50th anniversary of those games in, uh, outside of Munich. Uh, for those of you who don't know Leni Riefenstahl, she is a very controversial character in history. She was a dancer, uh, movie actress. And then in 1933, she became a director and directed what is considered to be the greatest propaganda film uh, ever made. It was called Triumph of the Will, and it was a, a total celebration of Hitler and, 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 the, and the Nazis. Um, some, of it, some people still think of her as a, as a devil. She herself protested that um, she was only being opportunistic. The guy wanted a film, she did a film. Um, whichever is correct, and I imagine that the truth lies somewhere in between, after the successive Triumph of the Will, the Nazis asked her to do a film on the Olympics. We think of Olympic films today as something that were always around, but in fact, it was the Nazis who created the idea with Leni Riefenstahl in uh, 1936. Um, those Olympics were very key, uh, a lot of ideas came out of them because it was very important for the Nazis to use those Olympics as, as, as a showcase. Uh, actually, if you see the film, Olympia, which won all sorts of awards, unlike Triumph of the Will, uh, there, there's no propaganda in it at all. Uh, Joseph Goebbels, the great Nazi propagandist got a little angry as a matter of fact that Leni had not concentrated more on, on saluting the party and the government as opposed to the athletes. It's really more than anything else, uh, a celebration of the human body and especially the, the male body. Lainey herself had a uh, glorious affair during the Olympics with a guy named Glenn Morris who won the decathlon, uh, an, an American. In any, any effect, anyway, because I remembered the day that I spent with Lainey Riefenstahl, and, and she, was in her 80s at that time too. She was living with a man in her 50s. Laney was quite a woman, she really was. <laughs> it occurred to me that, to go away from the obvious, instead of having Sidney Stringfellow fall in love with another athlete, which would have been the simple thing to do, I would have her fall in love with somebody who was working on the film um, with Lainey. And, and so, into my mind comes the young German, the son of a Nazi diplomat, a young man named Horst Gerhardt. And, and here is a brief scene when she has just recently met Horst, who's handsome, um, charming, uh, and, and idealistic, still dreaming that uh, his country can become great. And, Become the good guys once again. He's going to take her to, after dinner to, um, to meet Laney Riefenstahl at the place where they're making the film. He asked me if I wanted to go meet her, and naturally I said I'd love to. By now I'd heard a great deal about her. She'd been a dancer and then a movie star. But above all, she was very determined. In fact, Teddy, she was what you men used to call a hard broad. Now, you have to understand, they were all so dames then. Dames and broads both, Teddy, but there's a difference. Eleanor Home, for instance, uh, she was more what you men used to call a tough day. Lenny was a hard broad. What were you, mother? Now, that's a good question, Teddy. <laughs> I think I was a tough dame. I really do, but there were times when I had to be a hard broad, and I think I pulled that off. I never saw you that way, mom. No, by the time you were old enough to notice that stuff. I was just a lady. You could only be a dame for so long. You could be abroad for a little longer, but only so long. Of course, nobody can use words like that anymore. It's inappropriate. It's a visual world now, Teddy. Tattoos and toplessness. That's okay. It's tacky, but it's okay, because you can see them. In this world, anything you can see is just fine. We're back to Paleolithic times when painting pictures of the animals on the cave walls was what passed for sophistication. But anyway, Teddy, Lenny Riefenstahl. So we walked a horse car and he opened the door for me. the page. And I noticed standing there that he was taller than me, but only by a few inches when I had my heels on. Remember Winnie the Pooh? I I nodded. You never knew where Mom was headed, how stuff like that came from nowhere. I think it was Christopher Robin, well, either him or Pooh himself, talking about Piglet. And he said, just the size of Piglet, my favorite size. Horst was like Piglet in that respect. He was my favorite size. And so when he opened the door for me, we looked into each other's eyes for about a tenth of a second, and then he took me into his arms, and we started kissing, big time. Now, Teddy... Don't come, don't get nervous when it comes to your mother's lust. I'm just bringing this up to make a point, because that was the exact moment when I realized that the best kissing is standing up. I never wavered from that point of view from that moment on. You see it in the movies. Stand up kissing is just the best. Sitting down, it never works as well, it's never even as sexy. And when it comes to lying down, there's so much other stuff going on that the kissing becomes small potatoes. <laughs> but standing up, kissing horse, I never forgot. So, so they have, a, as you can see, a very quick and uh, lustful interest in one another. And, and, and having horse as the son of, of a Nazi diplomat, opened things up a great deal and contrasted so beautifully with with my hero in Sydney, who's so different, that provincial small-town girl, all-American from the eastern shore of Maryland, which was even more of a backwater back then, before the war, before the bridge, than it is right now. Also, it was very nice because I needed a place for to swim, and I just put her in the Chester River. But having her fall in love in Berlin in 1936, that was really providential for me because it's a time and place that had really fascinated me much before. 36 was still something of a, of a transitional time. Uh, not a single country, for instance, boycotted uh, the Olympics. The Americans almost did. We came within a few votes on the uh, U.S. Olympic Committee, but, but we didn't. The world had not completely made up its mind about Hitler then and the Nazis. Nobody understood where he was going. Nobody could even imagine the horrors that that lay ahead. If you read the contemporary accounts of those Olympics, it's very interesting indeed because it's a much more open-minded picture of Germany than you might imagine. So in that sense, it's a much more intriguing moment than later, when we, when we know for sure uh, what monsters the, the Nazis really were. And what always fascinated me in general in any situation like this, and, and what was particularly fostered for me not only by the piece that I did on Leni Riefenstahl, but one I did on Max Schmeling, um, the German boxing champion, a very... Uh, Ambivalent figure, very interesting character himself. Um, what fascinated me are the people, like Schmeling, who were caught in between. We always concentrate on either the villains or, or the victims in a situation like that. They have naturally either our hatred or our sympathy. But I wondered, what would it like? What would it be like to have been a young man like? Sydney's boyfriend Horst, being a young man in Germany at that moment in time in 1936, and I tried to imagine myself as as Horace, an upper class Protestant guy who loves loves his country, wants wants Germany to be big and real and loved again, but at the same time is beginning to see the dark side of his government and is frightened by that. And because Horst is, is, is trapped in the middle and proud on the one side and, and defensive on the other, Horst makes Sidney, who comes from a much more innocent background and a pretty segregated society on the eastern shore of Maryland in 1936, he makes her confront these, these kinds of, of contradictions. Goebbels, the uh, infamous propaganda minister, threw a fantastic ball on his own private island uh, right in the middle weekend of, of, of the Olympics. And because Horst's father is well-connected, as an ambassador, um, Horst wrangles an invitation. And uh, as much as he detests Goebbels, he wants to show off uh, Wants to show off his beautiful girlfriend, but she needs a gown. And so he takes her to a dressmaker that his mother has always used. It's a Jewish shop. And they park in front, and, and this is the conversation uh, that they have. And then he suddenly turned to look directly. I'd never seen a horse so intense. You think I hate Jews, Sydney? What? No, horse, I don't think you hate anybody. Thank you, sweetie. And he held out his hands, palms up, sort of shaking them, trying to put his thoughts together. Look, let me try to help you understand. You can't believe how bad it was after the Great War. My family was so glad to get to a sign to go to Japan, and it, and it wasn't easy there either. The, G- the Japanese had taken our islands in the Pacific after the war, and so it was pretty sensitive for Dad, for, for all of us. Hell, nobody liked the Germans then, but just to get out of Germany. I mean, people were starving here. It was awful, chaos. And Hitler brought us back. He did, not just economically, Sydney. We got our pride back. But some of the Nazis were really bad guys. You know, bullies, thugs, riding the wave. And, and so that was the bad that came with the good. He, he stopped and thought a moment before going on. You know, though, We're not all that different from other people. I don't think you're different at all, Horace. No, 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 no. I don't mean me, and I don't mean you. But look at the way you are with the Negroes. I lowered my head and and fiddled that laurel leaf that I still had in my hands. You go to school with Negroes, Sidney? I shook my head. You go to church with them? I shook my head. They live in your neighborhood? I shook my head again. And there's some Americans who even kill Negroes, don't they? What do you call that? Lynching. Lynch- lynching, I said very softly. Yes, and then he grabbed the laurel leaf and threw it into the back and took my hands. I'm sorry. All oh, that is so bad, but you, you're not bad, and I'm not bad. No, I, I wish I could stand on the street corner and shout about how we're wrong about the Jews, Sydney. I wish I could do something, but I can't. It would end my father's career, and the thugs would probably beat me up. Really? Oh, yeah, they would. But in your country, you, I don't mean you, I mean anybody, You have all your freedom. You can say something. You can do something about how the Negroes are treated. But who does? So who's worse? Us, because we can't protest. You, because you can, but you don't. I don't know, Horace. I don't know. So, Sydney's growing. She's learning a great deal in a very fast period of time, even as... um, even as she falls in love. I was lucky, too, in that uh, besides remembering my times with Eleanor Holm and, uh, and, and, and Leni Riefenstahl, I talked to some people who had actually been there in, in, in 1936. Um, the wonderful thing about talking firsthand to people like that is the detail, the little stuff that they can provide. Uh, there's a woman named Mary Lou Cock who had been a, 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 a swimmer there, had been there. Uh, and, and she, in fact, was in love too. She was going home uh, to marry her fiance as soon as the games was over. And she told me for amusement they, the swimmers, the other athletes, would, would take oranges and bowl them at Coca-Cola bottles. Just a little thing like that, but it really brings back the time. I talked to a guy named Adolf Kiefer, who won the gold medal in the 100 yard freestyle. Um, Kiefer was from Chicago, but you can tell from his name that he was a German American. And Hitler, true story, actually came down to the pool one day to meet Kiefer. He wanted to meet this German American who shared the same first name with him. So I put that little anecdote in the story. I, I borrowed my fictional Sydney and brought her over between the two Adolfs. But I put that in and people who didn't know that say that was it's kind of cheeky putting Hitler in there. I said, no, no, it really happened. He came to the pole one day, he really did. So it was um, such a time, such an extraordinary time. And for two young people, um, two young people who were so different, what a wonderful time to, to, to fall in love. Um, and after Berlin, after that interlude, you go right back to the depression and, and then the start of the war. And bliss, remembers, goes on uh, through the first year of, of, of World War II. So, now that I've written it, I, uh, I have no doubt in my mind that i picked, uh, picked the right Olympics. i picked the right time for, for such a story. As Sydney says when she begins talking to her son, Teddy, this is the last story about World War II because all the others have already been told so far. So that's Bliss Remembered. I thank you so much for coming and and listening to me talk about my novel, and now I'd be happy to answer any questions that you might have. Thank you so much. Any questions except what happens? I can't tell you that. Don't let me give away anything. Oh, no, 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 the question this gentleman says is he looked back at this period and seen so much about Hitler being accepted. Is that a a fair word? In that period. And I, I, at that time in 1936, accepted may be too strong but certainly people were prepared to give him some benefit of the doubt still at, 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 at that point. I think certainly uh, the pendulum was swinging in, in, in one direction. But particularly for a young man like my hero, Horst, idealistic and young and innocent, um, he could dream that Hitler would stop the bad stuff, see from the Olympics, how Germany could be appreciated and could be part uh, of, of the world scheme and, and would head in the, in the right direction. So, so in that sense, the Olympics were kind of pivotal in, in one way because, in fact, once they were over, uh, the gloves were off and, and, and the Nazis became more and more headed in, in the other wrong direction. Yes, ma'am. Oh, yeah. Lindbergh was, I think. Maybe somebody else is more of an authority, but I, I, th- I think he was for several more years. He ain't in my book. <laughs> it's not, you know, a full political accounting. Um, the, the interesting guy who really only passes through the book is Schmeling, Max Schmeling, the heavyweight. And, uh I desperately tried to get to meet him in the last years of his life. And he was very nice. He responded. He was, I think he lived in 99 and 9 months or something like that. All these people seem to live forever. Um, But he said, I just don't want to talk about it anymore. I've done it. But he had written an autobiography, uh, which I got translated. And he was very candid, talking about the ambivalence of Germans. And he was married to a movie star, had a lot of Jewish friends. And yet, he, he was honest enough to say, we kind of looked in the other direction. People would, um, people would not show up, and we would just not bring the subject up. Schmelling also was the one who pointed out that um, he could go into places where Joe Lewis couldn't, even though everybody had cheered for Joe Lewis. But in the United States, Schmelling, the German, could walk into hotels and restaurants and so forth. And Lewis, the champion, couldn't.
3: Well this is not long spoken, but my mother used to tell me about how going down the streets of Highland Town during Lewis and Schmelling's fight, all the windows were open because we didn't have air conditioning. And the the reports of the fight were, the radio broadcasts were coming out of every window. All I wanted to mention was there's, I'm sure you're, well, I imagine you're aware of it, the, there's such a charming photograph of Lewis at Schmelling that kind of overcomes, at least in my interpretation, uh, whatever differences uh, political parties, nations, military powers want to put between each other. And that just comes to mind because you mentioned Schmeling a couple times.
2: Schmeling and Lewis um, were not avowed enemies in any way. As a matter of fact, when Lewis fell on hard times late in his life and Schmeling by that time had become a rich man, Mm. thanks to having the Coca-Cola distributorship of Hamburg, um, Schmeling gave a lot of money to, to Lewis's wife. And helped as a, yeah. even pay for the pay for the funeral.
3: Commerce and sports—you ought to know. <laughs> I listen to you all the time. Thank you. I'm, I'm waiting to hear about you know instant replays in baseball.
2: Yeah, but not tonight. <laughs> I think there's somebody back there. If you want to yeah, give him the mic. Morning, I was morning, I can- I didn't hear the first part. You you teach English? I teach English to tenth grade students, and I'm trying to find ways to get them interested in telling stories. In Where telling stories? Yes. Yeah. Gosh. How did you find your way to storytelling? I. How did I find my way to storytelling? I think it was something that was just inbred in me. Um, I think most storytellers are that way. I don't think anybody sits down at the age of 35 and says, "Now I'm going to start telling stories." I think in the same way that uh, somebody can pick up a musical beat. You know, it's something that's there, uh, and, and, and it, it was you know, within me. And I love telling stories. The hardest part of telling stories is, is the ending. That's the tricky part. How many books have you read? How many movies have you seen where you like it all the way through, and you're let down at the end? So you know, it ain't that easy. Actually, this is a hell of an ending. The best ending I ever the best ending I ever wrote. I'm not comparing myself to Homer or Shakespeare or anybody else. Best ending I ever wrote. And you know, it just came to me. It wasn't like I had it in the beginning. It just came out of the characters. And suddenly one day I said, Oh my God, that's it. And and so I don't know what you tell your kids. I wish I could say, well, here, one, two, three, three A, three B. I can't do it. I think if they have an interest in stories, it'll come out. Yes? Yeah, you, you sort of just answered my question. Arthur Conan Doyle um, often wrote his ending first, and then he wrote the book. And so that was a question I had um, earlier on but tonight, but you sort of answered it. Um, I, what, what do you think about that? Well, I think, I think when you're talking about Arthur Conan Doyle or... or Agatha Christie, or any of those great mystery writers, they almost have to know how it's coming out because it's a puzzle, it's a trick. All the things that can happen, and this is what's really going to happen. This is a story not in a in, in mystery vein. It's intriguing, surprising, but it really comes out of the story. It, it's, it's not that puzzle. I think that the mystery writers have to do that, work backwards before they can really start to write. Um,
1: you know, in literature we have a lot of women writers who write char- male characters. And I was just wondering what you drew upon to write um, as, as a fee- as to woman. To write as I a think. woman.
2: Do a lot of women write as male characters? As male? Yeah. Well, I, you know, it's not like I was writing about a Mongolian woman from the 14th century. Uh, I I was writing about an American woman of the 20th century. As a matter of fact she was six years younger than my mother, so she came from that generation. And Women are not alien to me. Uh, I've been married to one, had a couple daughters, I had a mother, Uh, had women bosses, women colleagues. So I I felt, you know, kind of on firm ground. The one time I wasn't, it's a little chapter, which is just an interlude. They're in the ladies' locker room before a big race. And Sydney's taking off her bathing, or putting on her bathing suit, taking off her clothes. And I felt a little out of my element there because I'd never been in a ladies' locker room when people were taking off their clothes. And I thought for a minute, you know, I ought to just drop this chapter. I don't really need it. And then I say, what the hell? I'll leave it in and see if anybody says, no, nah, no, nah, you didn't get it right. And, in fact, women said, yeah, that's pretty much the way it is. So um, I, I, in many respects, I probably had a harder time writing about Horst, the German boy in 1936, dealing with the politics of the situation and his country and his feelings going back and forth. In some respects, that was harder than just putting myself in in high heels and a bra. (laughs) That that was a lot, you know, that's kind of easy. And nobody, anyway, nobody said I got it wrong. That's all I know. So you read the book and tell me if I blew it at any point. I did not show it to my wife until so I'd written it <laughs> where are we? yes sir well I knew you as a sports writer long before I recognized you as a, as a novelist and I'm just interested in learning something about the progression of your writing as a professional and how you got started and how you transformed yourself from a sports writer to a, a novelist I've always been um, sort of confused as to who I was as a writer. Even as a kid in school, I was writing for the school newspaper, but I was also writing short stories. So um, I still don't know who I am, even at this advanced age. And I go back and forth. I I think I know writing fiction is more satisfying gratifying because you 're creating it completely out of whole cloth, and so when it 's done, I think you feel um, more of an investment. I own this much more so than if I go and spend two days with Laney Riefenstahl, and no matter how much time I, I spend and how many other sources I go into, you know i, I can 't own her the way that I can own her in his book and, uh, and so um, I also think, though, that going back and forth between fiction and nonfiction has, has helped me you know, to get away from the fiction and then come back with a renewed interest. So anyway, that's what's worked um, for me, uh, doing both, and then I've also, you know, I'm, on, I'm writing in print, I'm writing on radio, I'm writing on television. I really am a very confused character even <laughs> at this late date. I, I'm going to get it right one of these days. I'm sorry? Oh, poetry? I can never do poetry. Can't stand poetry. All I know is the highwayman came riding, riding up to the old... That's all I know. Yes?
4: I just kind of wanted to know the process. Like, you have so many other things that you have to do. I mean... Obligations. So is there a certain time of day where you write? Or, I mean, do you have, is it, is it set aside um, that because you enjoy it so much that you have made time for it at a certain time? Or do you squeeze it in between? Or do you just jot down notes as they come to you? Or, or is it all appear? Um, <laughs> um, like most writers, I write in the morning.
2: I think most people that's when your mind is, is freshest, clearest, presumably. Um, I sit down, have a big breakfast, like a training meal, and, and then go and, and work. And that's the way I've always done it. Writing fiction is different than everything else though, because you can't dip in it back in and out of it. You really need to set apart a, a chunk of time, a chunk of days. You can't write on Tuesday lay it aside, and then pick it up on Friday. You've got to live with the characters and stay with them. You can do that sort of thing working with a nonfiction piece. You can say, oh, well, let's see where I was three days ago when I put this down. That's not ideal, but you can do it. But that's the difference with, with fiction. You, you really have to commit a larger chunk of, 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 of time to it.
4: And, and just, is that really difficult with all of the, the other writing that you have to do? I mean... Do you know, sorry, with all of the other writing that you do and all your other obligations, what days? I mean, do you have that many well, days available I, I just, to you?
2: The other obligations are, um, you know, I fit them in. I suppose that's the best way to say it. I have to do the NPR commentary once a week. So, you know, pick a day for that. All right, this morning I'm going to do, do that. I mean, you, yes, you, you can't completely immerse yourself when you're writing fiction. I mean, the world goes on. But you have to do it as much as possible, I suppose that's it. You have to restrict yourself.
4: And it's a little piggish of me, but I'd like to ask one more question. Um, has your, when you start a story, does it, do you find that you get really excited? Do, do your characters start to write themselves? Yes,
2: they do. Okay. Characters start to write themselves. Okay. It's, uh, it sounds sort of mystical and, and cliched, but if they don't start to write themselves, you're not doing a good job. You're not into the story. You know, maybe you should think about you know quitting and starting something else before. Because after a certain period of time, if your characters really aren't connecting with you, then you're just writing surface stuff. I
5: frequently have the opportunity to bring a a former athlete about the age of Sydney, my mom who's 93, to see sports events that women play now in high school. She's always commented as a former uh, six-person basketball player um, how wonderful the opportunities are and it's just magnificent to see people out uh, doing all of these sports. I wondered as, as Sydney evolved did you have to keep some sort of a leash or discipline on her so that your life, your knowledge of contemporary women athletes did not anachronistically influence her development or did that just be, was that just something that your research was allowed allowed to grow organically for you?
2: I think if you were writing um... Non-fiction, um, you'd have to pay more attention to the development of, of women's athletics and so forth. But here, it's a woman looking back on her time. She and her son are actually watching the 2004 Olympics as she tells the story. They watch it at night, and then you know she goes to bed, and then the next morning gets up and starts retelling the story. And she's cheering for Natty, Natalie Kaufman. You know, she's watching it, and at one point, her son does. She mentions the time, and, and Eleanor Holmes winning time in the 1932 games or whatever versus that, and her son says, well, doesn't that prove that you weren't very good? And she has a fit, and she says, no, it doesn't work that way. Just time doesn't mean anything. It's how you, how you competed at that moment she says are you going to try to tell me that Jesse Owens is no good just because guys have broken his records and I think that's kind of the way uh... that Sydney looked at it and, and, and that I would look at it. It doesn't diminish what happened in 1936 that somebody does it better now Oh, right down here
0: I want to ask you something about the Olympics of 1936. I assume that you've uh, Become something of an expert in them, Mm. and uh, and my impression has always been that Mr. Hitler uh, had looked upon the Olympics as an opportunity to glorify Germany and his ideals, and that uh, the success of Jesse Owens was quite he was quite taken aback by that. Was was the disappointment associated with that, if indeed there was any? at all pivotal, did it change his attitudes in any way or or the progression of his thought?
2: Um, When Hitler came to power um, as chancellor three or four years before, the Olympics had already been awarded to Berlin. They had actually originally been awarded to Berlin in 1916 and of course the war canceled them out. And so um, Germany was given the Olympics in '36 before Hitler came to power. As a, another bit of irony, the 1940 games were awarded to Japan. Of course, they never were played at all. Hitler had no interest in sports whatsoever. And one of the first things he said was, let's get rid of these damn things. We don't need them. They're just gonna be a nuisance. And it was Goebbels who said, Woohoo, slow down. We can really use this, pal. We can really show the world how good we can be, huh? And so forth, so it was Goebbels who convinced Hitler to build the great stadium, to really blow them out bigger than they had ever been before, to have a film. The, um, the torch, the torch that goes from Greece. Most people think that that was an old Greek custom. It wasn't, the Nazis invented that in 1936. This was all propaganda. And so when, when Jesse Owens uh, set the record the first day before Hitler, and there's a lot of mythology about it, but Hitler couldn't have been surprised. I mean, Owens was already the, the uh, uh, champion of the world, so it wasn't like this came as, as any great shock. What they told Hitler was if he was going to have Germans come to his box, then he had to have everybody come to his box. And Hitler said, okay, I won't do it anymore. So the idea that he rejected Owens is not quite accurate. He rejected, he didn't want, all, it was more positive. He was only going to <coughs> uh, salute the Germans who won. Germans did very well in the Olympics. They won more gold medals than anybody else. So it was hardly any kind of a defeat uh, for the Nazis. Um, actually, if you watch uh, Lenny Riefenstahl's film, you would never know that. She, she, she tends to be much more even-handed and, and gives credit to, to the Korean who wins the, um, uh, the marathon, spends a lot of time on Jesse Owens, and so forth. So the, the Olympics were a great triumph for Hitler, notwithstanding um, the Ethiopians, as they were always referred to for some reason, and the German press, the American Ethiopian Ethiopians. <laughs> the setback, but all in all, it was very successful. Should we one take more. one more, Judy? Mm-hmm. Okay. How long was Cindy in my head before I made, she made the paper? That goes to the question of the ending of the book. I couldn't wait to get her down. That's the real. I had to get started. If I'd sat around and figured it all out, the way I'm sure some writers do, the way many writers do, I might have lost my enthusiasm. And I just fell in love with her. And I, I gotta get this down, I gotta get started. That, that's, that's the sort of passion I have when I get to, to that kind of, 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 of point. It was better for me to get started and write something and get into the character. than to worry about the plot later on or the, or the rest of the plot.
0: Thank you so much, you. Frank DiPore.